This is the Stand and Deliver Comedy Podcast with Rodders. Stand and Deliver! Hello and welcome to the Stand and Deliver Comedy Podcast. My name's Rodders and I'm the promoter of the Stand and Deliver Comedy Club. We live up above Smoking Billy's Rip House in the centre of Reading and run monthly shows. I'm also a comic myself and, well, it's episode 13, so I'm being very careful not to record this podcast under a ladder as I normally would. I mean, sound people out there will know that recording under ladders is very, very good for the acoustics. Uh, but what of it being episode number 13, I wasn't willing to take that risk. Um, so what happens on this podcast? It's my way of sort of giving you a little peek behind the curtain into the weird world of stand-up comedy. Uh, perhaps you're a comedy connoisseur, you go to a lot of comedy shows, you, you, know, you watch a lot of comedy on TV or perhaps you're a comedian yourself and I'm keeping you company on the way to or from a gig uh, whoever you are uh, thanks for your ears it's much appreciated it'd be pointless wouldn't it without you guys I'd just be talking to myself and it's not just me on the podcast I talk to some of the people who have played my comedy club or sometimes I go out and about and I talk to some comedians that I meet on my uh, journeys as I'm traveling around the country gigging myself Today's guest is Freddie Quinn. I met him at the Hot Water Comedy Club in Liverpool. I can't recommend that place uh, highly enough, either as a performer or as an audience member. Freddie Quinn can be found all across the country in some of the biggest and best comedy clubs. He's got this brutally honest, uncompromising style. He's one of those MCs that will go out and immediately just roast the front row. I think intimidatingly funny would be a way I'd describe him. He's a great big bear of a man, kind of like if Henry VIII uh, brought himself up to date and got a job as a professional comedian um, hopefully that'll be taken as a compliment if you haven't had a chance to see him live just look him up on facebook and youtube there's loads of videos of him just taking down hecklers in a, in a most brilliant way uh, but before we get on to our guest uh, i just thought i'd uh, remind you about the last episode we released episode 12 it was uh, me chatting to danny ward who's played the stand and deliver uh, many times and uh, uh, I forgot to tell uh, one of my favourite Danny Ward stories uh, on the intro to the last podcast because we, we just ran out of time. Uh, but the last time I actually performed alongside Danny Ward was when I was booked for a, a, well, a really, really peculiar gig. I responded to a very, very last minute uh, request uh, for, for another act, an open spot. Uh, the open spot on a bill is uh, the comedian who isn't paid, who's trying to impress the promoter in order to get paid work later down the line. Uh, so that was me on a bill of a, um, a bunch of full-time professional comics, including Danny Ward as the MC. And this was no ordinary gig. It was in a bizarre art centre in London, uh, which was uh, made up of mostly shipping containers. Ooh, very trendy. It was very peculiar because it was run by some sort of charity that took people who were struggling to find employment, who had been unemployed for a very long time, and, uh, well, it... it from what I gathered, they seem to put people through a series of apprentice-style challenges, I'm guessing to bolster their CVs, and one of the challenges was was to organise and run um, a comedy night, and they had to have a, a minimum of 30 audience members, otherwise they'd fail the task. I mean, if, if you've never run a comedy club, that might not sound like 
a huge ask, but it's really hard, particularly in London, where there's all sorts of things going on, lots of competition. Uh, London's quite transitory as well. People commute in, they commute out. Um, everyone's kind of in their own little bubble. It's it's really quite hard to pull a crowd of 30 on a weeknight in London. Um, so uh, fair play to them. that They did pass the task, but... What a bizarre thing to get people to do. In, in many ways, it struck me as a bit cruel, because if you want to help people that don't have a job, wouldn't you be better off taking whatever resources you had and, and giving them a job, paying them to do something meaningful? Uh, it's just, just really, really bizarre. I remember one of the organisers was sitting on the front row just on her laptop, um, uh, so I asked her what she was buying on Amazon, and eventually she took the hint that maybe she should pay attention to the performers, and she put the laptop away. Uh, but it was a very, very strange gig, uh, because the the people running it, understandably, they, they were so wound up and so nervous because they didn't want to fail this task. I mean, it was exactly like the TV show The Apprentice. Uh, we were just kind of standing at the back of the room waiting for the show to start, waiting for our cue. Um and everyone was actually more nervous than us. And usually it's the comedians jittering around and everyone else kind of just meandering in and out getting drinks. But uh, to start the show uh, under... Because the sort of the energy in the room already was a very kind of fractious, nervous state. Uh, so to start a show under those conditions uh, was quite bizarre. I was quite excited by the whole thing. I think a lot of the uh, professional comics were like, oh, here we go again, another mad night. But I, I was just so excited because um, that's the, the one of the best things about stand-up comedy is that you're just told to get in a car or get on a train and just deal with whatever's at the other end and uh, what met us at the other end was absolute havoc the show got off to a rather interesting start where, where the opening act uh, just started laying into the audience for being unemployed and i just thought why under what conditions was that ever going to be a good idea uh, turn the whole room or, or be it shipping container against us before we've even started <laughs> uh, but luckily uh, Danny's expert MCing came into play then and, and he managed to tidy up the, the, the mess <laughs> left by the opener uh, and thank goodness uh, I also remember that when I got off stage and, and uh, during the interval I, I turned around and caught Danny Ward um, over by the buffet table because um the organisers had been kind enough to put in a whole load of food for us and, and loads and loads of beer. And I caught Danny just stuffing my rucksack full of bottles of beer. And he looked up at me and goes, well, you're the only one not being paid. Uh, so, so you might as well have these for the trip home. I just thought that was a really nice thought. And uh, um, I did. And I had a very, very enjoyable uh, train ride home. I'm not sure the other passengers did, though. That was a few years ago now, but I, I just thought I'd share that with you. So, yeah, if you want to hit learn more about Danny Ward, uh, go back and listen to l the last episode, episode 12. Right, it's probably about time we got onto the guest for today's episode. Uh, I talked to Freddie Quinn backstage at the Hot Water Comedy Club in Liverpool. Uh, we recorded it in a cupboard uh, just behind the stage, pretty much, uh, moments before Freddie was due to go on stage and host their Monday night show. Uh, we talk about all sorts of things, including whether uh, MC should really be trying out new material when hosting an evening, uh, whether audiences have actually become more sensitive and easier to offend with in recent years. And uh, we also got into a rather interesting discussion about how there seems to be a north-south divide in terms of how comedians prioritise developing their craft. He also mentions how uh, recently he had to send an email of apology uh, to an audience member. And there's loads more fascinating stuff in there. Uh, so recorded at the Hot Water Comedy Club in Liverpool, this 
is Freddie Quinn. This is the Stand and Deliver Comedy Podcast. You're emceeing Sundays, Mondays here. Yep. Is that a good way of... Do you find the most useful thing about that is the fact you get to try out new stuff in front of people every every Sunday and Monday? Or do you just do it more for the sake of the, the, the fun of having to do crowd work? Um, to be honest with you, I don't really try new stuff out um, when I'm comparing because... like. I, the thing is, is I wouldn't do it in the first section in case it didn't go well and I had to win the room back. And by the second section, they should already like you. And I find that if they already like you, then they're more receptive to... Like, you don't get a really good baseline over what's good and what isn't. So, I mean, I mean, I compare every Sunday at Hot Water, but I also do whatever I want to do during the week, you know, within reason, and, you know, some weekends too. Uh, depends, sort of filling the gaps on my diary but I mean I really just sort of do new material at new material nights I think that's the best place for it to be honest so if you're like last night and tonight it's newer acts is your uh, the way you approach emceeing an act where you know there's lots of new people on slightly different to say if you're I don't know comparing the comedy loft or somewhere where it's all people around your sort of level um yeah, I think it is. I think that if you were to do a like a professional bill, then there's less pressure on you to be funny in a way because I know that as long as they're listening, as long as they're on board, the opening act's going to smash it and blow it away. But whenever you do new act nights or gong show nights or anything like that, um, you don't necessarily have that reliance because you're... You know, the person who's going on first might have only been going six months or whatever. So there's more of a pressure on you in a way to be funny. Yeah, now, some, some acts I talk to, they get annoyed if they get put in the MC spot because they'd rather do do sets. Do you look at it as different or not? It's all part of the same comedy thing and it's all fun it's in its own right. <laughs> um, to be honest with you, there's sometimes when I prefer doing uh, MC work and then there's sometimes I prefer doing sets it's about 50 50 sometimes i like chatting to people sometimes i just like doing my own stuff the problem i think is when you get known just as an mc that that can be quite infuriating because then you just get stuck in that sort of role yeah, and you can't you, get off you get, get out and just do your, yeah. you get um you, you get like matthew perry and friends to, you know they only look at you as chandler do you know what i mean and you've got a it was a weird metaphor to use. Yeah. It was. I realised halfway through that metaphor it wasn't going to carry. Um, it's, it's like you, you don't want to just be seen as, oh, yeah, you're great to MC that because, you know, at the end of the day, you, you want to do sets because you get enjoyment out of that. I mean, I've had so many, you know, I've, I've done MCing for so long now. I've had all the conversations with all the different people and I just know all the... You know, I, I I do feel sometimes like I'm having the same conversation mm-hmm. over and over and over and over again. So it's not as exciting as it once was doing doing the MC stuff. But there must be some ways you can like make yourself because if you don't keep yourself kind of in the room, the people would notice. Like last night, you looked like you're having a whale of a time. <laughs> Whether well, you were or not, I don't know. I wasn't in your head, but do you know what I mean? It still looks like you're. Well, the thing is, is I was having a good time last night. Uh, there's some clubs where the audience are such that you can uh, you're afforded a lot more time and space. If you're doing a, a weekend club and there's stags and there's hens and they've all paid fifteen quid to get in, they're all a bit drunk, then you don't really have the time to set it up in a unique, interesting way. Your job is to 
be funny and make the night work, do you know, so you'd sort of stick to that. Whereas sometimes with these hot water things, I, I, I have more time to, because the audience is so nice and receptive, you have more time to, uh, you know, disregard the low-hanging fruit and come at it from a different angle, and that kind of keeps it fresh and in the room for you, you know. Last night, you, you know, well, you're pretty rude to this one bloke. I think you said to him, uh, what are you going to do, go skateboard to work or something? But at the same time, everyone still likes you. So how do you try? How do you try? Or maybe they're just too scared. If I was that rude to someone, I wouldn't get away with it. So I don't. So how do you tread the line between just being rude to people and still making them feel included enough? Because the guys you were laying into, they kind of were in the spirit of it. So it kind of felt like a mutual thing. Okay, well, part of it is reading body language. And that bloke, you know, he was, he, he, he looked, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't being, trying to threaten the night, he was trying to join in. And if you, you know, you can pretty much say whatever you want to those kind of people because they just want to be included, you know. So he's, he, part of it's reading the kind of person that you're speaking to. But also as well, I mean, I do really like laying into an audience. I really like trying to push them and say the the worst things that I could say. Um, I mean, I don't know if you heard last night as well, I was talking to a couple from South Africa and we talked about um, apartheid. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, but, but it, 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 that's the challenge for me is, is taking it that far. It, the way that I get away with it is, like I said, by reading the the people that I'm talking to, but also I, I wait until they have sort of established that I am funny before I do any of that stuff. So I don't come out on stage and go, do you know, Hey, it's great to be here. You look like you fucked a child. Cause it, it, it's too much too soon. But you know, if, if, if you wait and if you wait for them to buy into and believe in the fact that you're funny, then that really helps in terms of what you'll get away with. Also, as well, if you sell it with like a smile and a laugh and stuff, then that helps. Yeah, away with it. Yeah. So, are our audiences more sensitive these days, or is that just something certain comics say because they want to do particular types of jokes? Audiences are more sensitive these days. Mm. In the last two weeks, I've had an audience member. Uh, stand up and scream at me and shout at me because I did a joke about eczema and she has children at home that have eczema and apparently that's a, a line that I'm not allowed to cross. And she literally stood up, shouted at me, called me a bully on stage and then uh, and then left with six of her friends. Um, what else? I had to... Um, uh, I did another gig where uh, it was like in a pub and then a guy came in not knowing what was happening, and I pretended that we were a paedophile support group. Uh, and then one guy complained, and he wanted me to go on stage and do a, a retractment of the statement. But I'd already left, and he kicked up that much of a fuss that um, he spoke to the promoter and he spoke to management, who asked me to email him. So I had to email him a paedophile retractment statement. <laughs> but it's just ridiculous, and that that's in the last. Two weeks. It's audiences are way more sensitive. But you tend to find, as in both of those examples, I've been talking to somebody else and someone else has got offended. Do you know what I mean? Like it's very rare that I'm talking to somebody and they get offended. That doesn't really happen. It's usually I'm talking to somebody and I mention an offhanded comment or remark and somebody else in the room relates that to them. And gets offended. I mean, I find the whole thing about 
offence stupid anyway. I find it a ridiculous discussion. It sounds like well, it sounds like you spotted that there's a trend going on for people getting taking things not as jokes, but like a devil's advocate. What shouldn't comedians move with what audiences want? And if audiences aren't into picking on groups anymore, then where where do you where do you go with it? Well, no one said that they're not into it anymore. Um, mm. I mean, these are just two people. Right. Do you know what I mean? I mean, I must have performed to. Well, I've worked every night for the past two weeks, yeah, yeah. so I must have performed to a thousand people at least. Two out of a thousand people isn't a, a particularly representative group. Um, it's just two nutters. Do you yeah. know? But it's it's not necessary. I mean, I think I think that if you are if you find something offensive, mm. then that's your right to find it offensive. Yeah. Um, but what you do after that is is there's a right and wrong way of doing things. Mm. If you just leave because you do, you're not enjoying it, fine. Yeah. You're not enjoying it. You take yourself out of the situation. Great. Okay. If you just sit quietly and just go, this isn't for me. Great. But if you choose to disrupt the night, if you choose to throw a spanner in the works, then that's you being a dick. Yeah. Because I no, guess you're then hampering other people enjoying it. No one person is the arbiter for taste. Do you know what I mean? Mm. And you can't ever look at somebody and assume what kind of sense of humour they're being to. I've spoken to 18-year-old lads that have been the biggest snowflakes in the world that have, that have shrunk at any time I've ever mentioned anything. I've spoken to 80-year-old women that have howled about mm. the most ridiculous, horrible things in the world. You just can't judge it. Yeah. Yeah, it's right. With... Um... Because you don't see a lot of the new acts uh, here. Mm. Are you spotting any trends with what, what acts like to talk about, what kind of styles are coming through now? Because you must get a pretty good overview of where comedy as a, as a whole is going. Yeah, look, I mean, it's it's normal mm. for comedians, new comedians, to uh, imitate whatever's in fashion at the time. Mm-hmm. So when I first started, the comedians that were in fashion were Jimmy Coyle... Jimmy Coyle? Jimmy, <laughs> Jimmy Carr and Frankie Boyle. Uh, and so naturally the comedy that Open Spots would do was kind of, you know, brash and abrasive and rude and edgy stuff. Um, you know, fast forward a couple of years and Stuart Lee was getting more acclaim with Comedy Vehicle and stuff like that. So every comedian wanted to be Stuart Lee and Daniel Kitson and you had Open Spots deconstructing jokes like they were masters of the art when actually they'd only been doing it for 12 months. Yeah. And now I find that people like, um, you know, with the prevalence of people like James Acaster, who's probably recognised as being, the, you know, one of the best comedians of this current generation, the acts coming through now try and imitate him, you know, and, and talking that style and, you know, with that lilt and that sort of introspective introspective glance on things. Yeah. That's, that's the style now. But in five years' time, when something else is is, you know, the main flavour, then they'll be doing something else. It's just the way it works. But when you started, did you go after a particular style that you wanted to do and then kind of found your own voice along the way? Or, Well, when I started, I was quite offensive, as was everybody else. Um, but then I read an article about how you are responsible for the things that you say on stage or the responsibility that you have. And that made me think and change my direction a little bit. Um, 
now I, I, I don't feel as though I have really found my voice on stage yet. I feel like, I mean, I'm I'm drawn to sort of American comedy. That's the kind of stand-up that I like. I feel like I'm a bit more offensive, a bit more abrasive. Um, but in terms of finding where I am stylistically, you know, after, you know, this is my ninth year in comedy now and I still don't really feel like I am totally comfortable in my own style. I still feel like I'm experimenting. That's amazing because I, that's what I, I... I think that I've got to get out of the way first before I can do comedy for real quotes. I've got to find my voice. So I think you're still kind of hacking away, finding a voice, yet you're being professional for ages. That is a very down south thing to think. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really funny, actually. I, I honestly believe that your comedy is shaped by the circuit that you grow up in, right. if you like. And if you're um, in London or down south where there are... 400 million open mic nights yep. and <laughs> you, you know not all of them are great uh, but there's a lot of stage time going yeah uh, then you have more time to find your voice whereas if you're a more northern act spaces are much more at a premium and it's more important about being funny so up here funny tends to come first and voice tends to come second whereas you know down south you know originality and an original comic voice seems to be the first thing that you develop and then you think about being funny afterwards you know it's just about the circuit that you that you shape yourself in so it's like you almost to be doing it in a different order generally. yeah 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 you do you do Cause it ideally you you'd, you'd have both like, that would be the perfect act wouldn't it and it seems like the southerners do it one way first and then uh, worry, we worry about being funny later after we developed a character or whatever. Yeah, but the thing is, is finding a unique comic voice and being incredibly funny are things that take decades to master. You know, it's not something that takes twelve months. You know, it's it's it, it's a lifelong. And some people never find a proper voice, and you know, some people find a voice, but they never really make it work. It's it's not something that you can get within a couple of years. It's it's more something that you should strive to achieve over the course of decades. Ah, that's, well, that's encouraging to hear. I mean, though, I have to be in no hurry to, to find a voice. It's kind of just a, a progress thing. That's well, interesting. if you think about it, I mean, this is how I sort of explain it to people, new acts sometimes. Like, if you wanted to learn how to play the trumpet, then you could sit at home every night for 20 minutes and you could practice the trumpet. And you could do that for years and years and years. And the first time that you play in front of somebody, you're amazing. They think you're Louis fucking Armstrong. But stand-up isn't like that. In order to practice stand-up, you have to do it in front of people. You can't just do it on your own and get better and then walk out on stage for the first time and be amazing. It just doesn't happen. So you have to be willing to practice in front of people and you have to be willing to be rubbish in front of people and to have them look at you like you're a bit mental. Be that you looking for your own voice and trying to find that, or be you just trying to be funny, mm. you know. You've got to be ready to practice in front of people and for it to not go well. So, yeah, it's interesting. I heard that you've kind of started comedy for a while, stopped, worked in a call centre, then took it up again. What made you kind of stop and then start again? Because <laughs> there's always something that... Who told you that? Wiki- Wikipedia. Really? <laughs> no, that actually, no, the last bit was on your website, so that's probably oh, either, either you or, or someone un- who works under you. Because um, I just... Because I, I, I 
nearly stopped at one point and then I started again and I've had more fun the second time round and I just I think there's always something interesting about what makes people pack it in and then also what makes people jump back on it again so I started comedy my very first gig was the 3rd of March 2007 and it was at Beat the Frog in Manchester and I wouldn't beat the frog um and then my second gig was I mean I was ecstatic you know I was absolutely I, th- I thought I was like the second coming you know I thought I was going to be on TV by the end of the year I, th- I thought that I was just great at this and then um after the gig somebody gave me um a business card that's how long ago this was it sounds ridiculous and said oh, I want you to come to this gig uh, that I have in a bar in Manchester on Wednesday and I, went, and I was like great second gig this is this is rolling I got to the second gig, and I, the Frog and Bucket gig, there was 300-plus people there. The second gig, there was 10 people there, maybe 12 people, and I was just... I did the same set, and I was dreadful. I died on my arse, and I, I couldn't work out why it would go down great one place and terribly another. I just couldn't work that out, you know. And I did a few more gigs, and I was only 18 at the time. I did a few more gigs. I think I must have done about 30 or 40 gigs, in the space of the next 12 months. And I just couldn't work out why I was ripping it at some places and dying on my ass at other places. And I was just... In, in the end, I decided that I was just too young for it. I was always the youngest person on the bill. It didn't feel like I really had anything to say or any life experience. And all the funny people were talking about their girlfriends and the kids and, you know, taking drugs and, you know... And I'd never really done any of that, really... So I stopped and I got a job and I worked in a call centre for a while. Um, And then a few years later, I just started comedy again and I just kept going. And I was all the better for it. You know, I really don't think there's anything wrong. I mean, I get held to task sometimes. People go, oh, well, you haven't been doing comedy for you know this isn't your ninth year this is your 12th year you know because there's purists out there that like to take into account the exact moment that you start as your comedy birth as it were but i really don't think that there's anything wrong in starting realizing that you're not very good stopping for a while a couple of years or however long works for you just taking stock of things and then starting again you know comedy's always going to be there yeah, because I don't like it when people ask me how long have I been going because, like, I did one gig... I started when I was at school. I did one gig every school holiday and it wasn't until after uni that I did it more regularly. So to say, so if I told the actual years, it just doesn't make sense because the people who have been going as long as that are normally all full-time professionals. So it's a weird measure, I guess, because it, it doesn't take into account that the last two years I've been busy, but the first few, I was kind of, it was kind of more hobbyist. I didn't know how to get more gigs well the thing is is it's one of those things that the things that are important when you start are not important after a while do you know what i mean when you've been going the things that are dead important to you after three years don't matter at all after eight nine ten years you know it's the whole how long have you been going? Oh, you've won this open mic competition here. Oh, you got into the final of So You Think You're Funny. Oh, you, you're one amused moose. L- none of it matters after, you know, a decade because I can tell you right now that the funniest people that were around when I was starting comedy, none of them are pro now. So that's, so I guess what matters now is that the bookers know 
who can do the job and well it's because it's it's not about who is the oh, funniest yeah it's about who is the hardest worker Oh, I think you've been chucked on stage. Oh, that's all awesome. right. Thanks very much for that, Freddie. Much appreciated. Sweet. Have a good gig. Thanks very much, pal. See you later. This is the Stand and Deliver Comedy Podcast with Rodders. And with that, the stage manager whisked Freddie away to start the comedy show. It was great chatting to Freddie. And the first night I met him on the Sunday, I do really appreciate the fact he actually bothered to stop and give me some advice and tips on my set afterwards. Uh, because comedy is this really weird game of trial and error. And uh, there's not often, there's, there's not much help and you have to go it alone a lot of the time. Uh, so you really do need the more experienced acts who've been there and done that before you uh, to give you a bit of help now and again. Um He could have just gone home and not bothered, so I do appreciate that. Uh, If you're an aspiring comedian, you might want to know that he's got a book out. It's called The Quintessential Guide to Comparing. A pun in the title. Uh, Just look it up on Amazon. It's available in paperback and, if you're feeling really modern, in Kindle format. I had a fantastic time at Hot Water in Liverpool. I performed three times, once once on Sunday night at Seal Street and then twice on Monday night at both of their venues. They, They got a new venue at Hardman Street, which is this huge night club um and uh, the, the city itself is amazing uh, when i can when i got the time I, I like to make a bit of a ho- comedy holiday these things i did a similar thing when i went to birmingham and uh, uh, yeah i had a holiday to birmingham and, and i had a great time uh, and likewise i had a holiday in liverpool because it, it is a bit of a waste i think uh, to always just uh, go to the venue do your spot and then get on the train and immediately leave i think that is a bit of a shame considering uh, liverpool is an amazing city uh sunday night in Liverpool is like Saturday night in Reading. It's absolutely heaving. People are out everywhere. And also, people are really, really friendly. If you look confused for more than two minutes, uh, somebody comes up to you and uh, asks you where you need to go and walks you to the nearest bus stop. It's incredible. That would not happen down south. Uh, You'd just get tutted at, wouldn't you? So I stayed with my friend Meg. Uh, first night we were there, uh, it was a Saturday, so we just went on the most mad night out. We, we followed around an amazing covers band called Fire. We saw uh, both of their sets in two separate venues, went to the world-famous Cavern Club, went to some other pubs, and ended up in this bonkers nightclub that was on about three floors. We ended up there for the rest of the night uh, because we got lost and couldn't get out. Uh, and this was absolute bedlam, this place. They had stilt walkers, uh, and it was absolute panda. Ammonium, uh, but an amazing night out. So Sunday night was their venue at Seal Street, and then on Monday night it was two gigs. The first at Seal Street again, which is a, is a feels like a lovely little sort of theatre um, behind a bar. And uh, the second venue at uh, Hardman Street is is new. They've only just opened it. And it's absolutely massive. There must have been 300 people there on a Monday night. And uh, I ingratiated myself uh, 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 to the green room immediately by... Uh, walking into the room and knocking over a pint glass which smashed all over the floor and uh, the acts were like oh look at him he comes in here from Reading starts wrecking the place oh you've got no manners you southerners um, so th- that was my uh, my introduction uh, to the rest of the acts and uh, to be honest with you I found that gig quite hard work I went on after a guy called Jeff Boys I've looked him up he's a jongler's veteran uh, like decades of experience plays all the big rooms 
And uh, <laughs> no, no wonder I had a hard time following because uh, he absolutely smashed the roof off the gig. And, and then I came on stage and uh, like it wasn't a disaster, uh, but I didn't walk away thinking I did as well as the Jongler's veteran because, of course, how, how could I? Uh, but it was an amazing experience and I learned absolutely loads. Uh, right before I uh, wrap up this podcast and uh, dispose of it responsibly, uh, I should probably tell you what's coming up at the Stand and Deliver Comedy Club. Uh, thanks to all who came to our November show. We sold out. Uh, it was absolutely heaving. We almost had to turn people away. I decided to put myself on, so I, I performed. That was great fun. And uh, so booking is advised for our next show, which is on the 13th of December. Our MC is our MC is Bennett Kavanagh, who is an incredible uh, musical comedian. He's played the club twice before, at least. And uh, it, it's sort of this surreal blend of stand-up and musical comedy. And he plays a full-sized keyboard, which he wears around his neck. So it's, it's always funny watching him uh, travel to gigs, especially when he has to go by public transport, because he's just lugging this massive keyboard around the place. Um, that's not the only reason I booked him. He's a fantastic act. And our headliner is Luke Honoretti. Incredibly funny act. I met him at a gig in Bath. He's got this really affable, fun style that makes you sound like... He's kind of like, uh, it makes you feel like you're his best mate within a couple of jokes. Uh, it's it's great stuff. So I advise you go book uh, uh, now. Just go to facebook.com forward slash stand and deliver comedy night. Click on the big blue book now button. And now here's a couple of highlights out of my own gig diary. Uh, on the 16th of November, which is a Friday, uh, I'm at the Carolina Brunswick in Brighton for On The Edge Comedy. Olga Koch is headlining. You can hear my chat with her all the way back on episode number five. Uh, worth downloading that. So that's going to be a terrific night. It's, a, it's a quite a famous venue for comedy. And then 20th November, I'm at Comedy Beast at the South Kensington Comedy at the South Kensington Comedy Club in London and then uh, the Comedy Tavern at the North London Tavern in Kilburn is on the 18th of December that's a brand new comedy night uh, run by uh, Ellie Craft who performed at the last uh, Stand and Deliver so if you do want to know where I'll be gigging next just go to rodders.com r-h-o-d-d-e-r-s.com forward slash gigs also uh, important bit of uh, uh, club related news uh, we've started a Stand and Deliver Comedy YouTube channel uh, just type in Stand and Deliver Comedy into YouTube and uh, uh, we have uh, we're posting clips uh, from all of our shows we're posting clips from some of our shows uh, so far we've got clips of Sam Smedley and Ruby Carr and ooh, there's one of me as well uh, banging on about some nonsense uh, so yeah that's pretty much it um, while you're there on your phone or on your computer please 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 do me a big favour write me a nice review on iTunes because the more ears that we get on this podcast uh, the more likely I am to do these more regularly because uh, I love doing them but it does take a bit of effort so uh, I do need a bit of encouragement now and again and uh, just email me email me your thoughts on, on any of the guests or any of the shows or just uh, um, just, just email me info at rodders.com and I will read them out uh, so yeah this is Rodders signing out for the Stand and Deliver comedy podcast <laughs>